coming up on this Sweeps Period episode of An Older Gay Guy Show. And he looked all scared. He was shaking. His eyes were real big and everything. And we're going, what's the matter, man? What's the matter? What happened? What happened? And he said, one of the guys from the gay flight came over here. And hello, everyone. What's up? Thanks, as always, for joining me today. You know, I have to say that I'm somewhat relieved that the voting is closed for the podcast awards. Congratulations, my friends. You have survived another year of me asking for your vote for my nomination into the finals. I'll know in the middle of August if I make those finals, but to be honest with you, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be. So it'll be a happy surprise, certainly, if it happens. In today's show, we start with the first episode of a five-part series from Sergeant Ron, previously known as Officer Ron, from the very popular Gay Prison Guard series. Now, in this series, he takes us further back and tells tales from his time in the military when being gay honestly was a dangerous thing. What he encountered and with whom he was able to connect with are interwoven in these stories. Now, these episodes will be out the first of every month. Today is August 1st, and they're going to be on the first of every month through the end of this majorly fucked up year that we have here in 2020. Now, this is one of the episodes that I had mentioned in the last interview with Randy Slavacek, where I like the guest to just tell stories. And with Sergeant Ron, he pre-records these things for me and sends me the files. We have a little trouble connecting for a live interview, but I think these work really well because Ron takes us through his life, in this case the military experience, the way he wants to tell those stories. You know, I'm not prompting him constantly with questions. He is just giving us stories about his life. And I really like that. Now, here in part one, he tells of his entrance into the military. He's going to tell some boot camp stories, his specialized training in Biloxi, Mississippi, and then what it was like to be in the Philippines, stationed at one of the busiest intersections of the war. I think you'll enjoy this episode and, and, and be sure to listen to the teaser for part two when things start to get sexual. And that teaser is going to be in the end of today's show. The title of today's episode is Sergeant Ron, Gay Military Life, Part One. I am Joey Hernandez. Thank you for joining me. My friends, today's episode is brought to you by AdamMail.com, my personal favorite place to go to get all things sexual and entertaining. And as a listener of this show, 
AdamMail.com is offering a special. You can have 50% off almost any one item, and that includes free shipping. Go to AdamMail.com and enter the code AOGGS at checkout to get your wonderful discount. And now, without any further ado, here is Sergeant Ron. Well, first of all, Joey, I wanted to set the background when I first entered the military by saying that, believe it or not, I was very, very naive about sex. Going all the way back to the sixth grade, yes, I knew how babies were made. I knew that man and woman would get together, and I knew that part. But if you had asked me questions such as what's oral sex or what's anal sex, I would have been totally lost. I mean, I I probably heard those words, but I had no idea what they were. But the biggest thing is I had no idea what two men could do. I mean, yes, I had heard of the word homosexual, you know, uh, calling someone gay or something like this. But I really had no idea what two men could do. I really didn't. I remember going all the way back to the sixth grade that I was attracted to men. I love going to the gym and that type of thing. But I also noticed that I was really looking at their butts and everything. I love a man's butt. I mean, that was far more interesting to me than, let's say, uh, their tools. But at the same time, if you ask me, well, okay, What do you do? What happens after that? I had no idea. And this went through high school. This went through uh, college. And right up until I entered the uh, military, something else I meant to mention is the fact that I had never seen a, a Playboy centerfold. I mean, I had friends that described it to me. Of course, they had it so well hidden that they couldn't show it to me because they didn't want their parents to find out or else they had stolen it from their father's stack or something like that. But the first time I ever saw a Playboy centerfold was in basic training and everything when one guy held it in front of me to see how I would react to it. The other thing I wanted to point out was the fact that we had everything from the Vietnam War was still going on We had what was called the draft, a selective service, and it was the old style that they used. So, But that was never a worry for me because I wanted to go into the military. My biggest worry was going into the Army because at that time, the Army was getting all the draftees or so everybody thought. And I thought, well, if you're a loser, that's where you're going to go. But something my Marine Corps friends used to get really irate was the fact that Sometimes during this period of time, and I'm talking about like uh, late 60s, early 70s, Marine Corps didn't always fulfill its quota of, <laughs> of recruits. So they also had to take in, you know, draftees, as they were called, but not as, not as much as the Army. Quick story about that. When I was going to college and everything my last year, of all things, my uh, lab partner, had just who had just gotten out of the Marine Corps, as it turned out, you know, he had been a draftee and everything. Very silent guy, 
rarely spoke about anything outside of our assignment and everything. He was a good guy, though. I appreciate it. But just off the cuff one day, I said, you know, I'm thinking about joining the Marine Corps. Oh, my goodness. He practically hit the ground, you know, with his knees. And he started begging. He said, please don't do that. The Marine Corps ruined my life and all this. And I really don't know about his background because I didn't know how things worked in there. I mean, it was a shock for me to find out that he had been a draftee, but okay. It was just, I'd never seen anybody have a reaction like that before, especially from him. Anyway, the only thing I was worried about was going into the army. Well, years later, I kind of regretted that a little bit, not too much, but a little bit. I wanted to go, well, originally I wanted to go into the Marine Corps. <laughs> and it was especially annoying because the uh, Marine Corps depot, you know, the Camp Pendleton wasn't that far away from where I was. I was actually in my senior year going to San Clemente High, and <laughs> you could actually hear some of the uh, bombardment when it was quiet and everything while you were taking a test or something. Way in the background, you could hear them doing their artillery training or something like that. And, of course, every so often you would see uh, Marines walking around and, boy, oh, boy. And, of course, I couldn't help noticing how good they looked in their pants, you know, showed off their butts and everything. But I really wanted to go into that. But once my parents found out about it, well, I put it mildly, all hell broke loose and everything, and they – Worked on me the longest time. Of course, I also kept telling them I don't want to be drafted and all this. And and then, uh, oddly enough, I first went looking at the Navy because I thought, well, okay, maybe as a compromise, I'll go into the Navy and everything. And uh, it was, I have to tell you something. I, you know, you saw all those pictures from, you know, the 6 o'clock news on the TV, all those, you know, people bl being blown up or the, you know, the children and everything. And I was just absolutely terrified about that. I was so nervous about the whole thing. I, I would shake like a leaf. So when I first walked into the Navy recruiter's office, he wasn't too um, accommodating is the word I would use and everything. And I explained to him at the time that I was about to graduate from college with a degree in electronics and what could the Navy do for me? And I also reminded him that if he promised me anything, I was going to look for it in the contract. And if it wasn't there, then we could forget it. Well, anyway, he suddenly gave me a pop quiz right there on the spot. Well, they, believe it or not, they have to. They have to get, well, not a pop quiz, but they do have to test you to see what job you qualify for. It was a pop quiz, which I, I don't do too well at. Well, I think I might have misspelled my name. That's how nervous I was. And it was, uh, uh, you know, the environment was bad. I mean, I had to do the test right there on his desk, and there was all this distraction going on. And I, I think I, I missed some really basic questions. I mean, mostly with math. I know that because when he went to correct it, I remember a couple of times I saw him actually change the answer on my sheet and stuff like this because apparently I had done pretty badly. And I remember at one point he looked up at me and he said, 
college graduate, huh? <laughs> Maybe you saw that I misspelled my name. I don't know. And then he looked at me with a great big grin, and he says, well, I can make you a linesman. And I looked at him, and I said, a linesman? Well, you can make just about any high school electronics student a linesman. I said, I have a degree. Doesn't that amount to anything? And then he said the worst possible thing. And that was, he says, well, don't worry about it. They'll change it anyway during boot camp. Well, that's what I was trying to avoid. That's what I explained to him in the beginning, is I wanted something concrete that was on paper because, you know, I lived near El Toro and I saw a lot of the Marines doing stuff like picking up trash. And you heard all these horror stories about, you know, getting stuck on the ship and doing nothing but painting the side of the ship and scraping off rust and all that. And it was like, hey, I've got an electronic degree here. Also, I was looking toward the future. I thought, well, you know, if I have some experience in electronics, this will help me to get a job and all this and and he said that, I thought, can this guy really be trusted? Well, anyway, I made a quick dash over to the Air Force recruiter. I kind of mentioned what had happened with the Navy recruiter, and he kind of said, well, I'm going to have to give you a test also. I'm thinking, oh, my God, a test. Uh, I don't know if I can handle this. But he said, it's going to be tomorrow. It's going to last about three hours. And I thought, well, I can handle that because having being in college and everything, when I used to get ready for a big test or anything, I would kind of psych myself out. I know it sounds strange, but very often that was about the only way I could get through a test and anything. So during the night, I was psyching myself out. I had nothing to study, though, because I had nothing. So the next day when the big day came, well, the Air Force recruiter put me in a room. It was I was... Well, there was one other guy testing, but I mean, we were just totally alone. It was quiet. I had plenty of time to take the tests and concentrate and everything. Later on, I was to find out I did pretty good. And guess what? I did spell my name correctly this time. <laughs> so from there, you know, the, I actually was able to qualify for just about every electronic job that the Air Force had. They gave me a bunch of booklets that I took home, and I went and I looked at every single job, and I, I wanted to travel so badly. And I picked out that job that I thought I would be doing a lot of traveling in, and I did pick the right one for that. And for some cases, not my case, but in other cases, it did too much traveling for a lot of people. But I was able to travel around the world and stay overseas for nearly 11 years or so, and it was a very exciting time for me. A story I think, Joey, you might like to hear about basic training. As I said before, I joined while the Vietnam War was still going on, and we still had a thing called the draft going on, and well, the, the services had a bit of a problem, because see, they're only allowed to take in so many draftees per year, I should say. And uh, so the services, all of them, had to put out these different programs to try to get people to enlist so they could meet their quota that year and everything. And that's why I was able to get the electronic job I was, because at that time, uh, the Air Force, and to a certain extent, the Navy and the Army, 
we're willing to make a deal with you for a certain job, provided, of course, you qualified for it. I hear the Marine Corps would just laugh in your face and everything. You know, they said they'd go ahead and make a promise to you, but uh, whatever, the, what was best for the Corps was always the, their key word and everything. Anyway, after I went into basic training, in the Army and the Marine Corps, they have what's called platoons. Okay, those are a training unit. In the Air Force, we didn't call them platoons. We called them flights. And a flight in the Air Force was about 100 guys, you know, four uh, squads, 25 guys each and everything. But some of these flights were like specialized flights. In other words, the Air Force had what was called the fat boy flight. And that was guys that had failed the entrance exam because of their weight and everything. So the Air Force would go ahead and accept you. And you went into this, what was called the fat boy flight. And then besides getting the regular training as a recruit, you also had you know, special physical training. And then also you had to eat a certain kind of food. And of course they limited the amount of kind of food you had. And, uh, also uh, something, the Marine Corps also had a fat boy platoon as well as the Army. I don't know about the, the Navy anyway. Can you imagine being on some kind of fat boy program in the Marine Corps <laughs> during boot camp? I, I, you know, that's a frightening thought. They don't have that anymore, by the way. You know, if you aren't not within the weight limits and stuff, they, they just turn you away. But back then, they were pretty desperate. And then the Air Force also had what was called a math of flight. And in other words, these were guys that didn't do so well on the math part for the exam, uh, entrance. So the Air Force would go ahead and exam, I mean, um, allow them to enter. And then besides getting the regular training as a recruit would get, they also got specialized training in math. And uh, and then there was another flight, I, I believe it was for reading. So if you were a slow reader, you had to go into this specialty flight and everything. And then besides getting the regular training, you also had to take classes in reading and everything. And then there was this really heavy, heavy rumor that there was a gay flight. And it was for gay guys. And this... Uh, <laughs> Well, I, I can't remember how I was reacting to it, but, I mean, the guys were talking about it. You know, there was a rumor that they all wore pink underwear and they had to wear pink uh, hats or pink scarves or something. So whenever we got in with other flights, you know, some different activities and everything, we were always looking around to see who was wearing a pink hat or pink scarf or possibly wearing pink underwear or something. And... Uh, I remember this. there was this one time, there was a group of us outside, and we heard a scream. So we ran toward the scream. It was one of our guys. He was behind a bush or something. And he looked all scared. He was shaking. His eyes were real big and everything. And we're like, what's the matter, man? What's the matter? What happened? What happened? And he said, one of the guys from the gay flight came over here. And we're looking at each other like, oh, my God, this is awful so what happened what happened you know and he said he spoke to me so i was the one that asked the question well what did he say he said hello how are you doing and i remember just standing there like 
he could see like the blank look on my face or something. He became a little bit indignant. And he goes, it was the way he was saying it. He was saying, hello, and this type of thing. And how are you doing? You know? And of course, we're all ourselves. We say, where is he? Where is he? We'll go beat the, you know, the shit out of him or something. And of course, uh, you know, it was nowhere to be found and you know, all that. So, I mean, all of us ran back inside to the other guys in the flight. And we said, oh, you know, so-and-so, you know, he ran into a you know, gay guy, tried to convert him and everything. And everybody was like, oh, Lord, it was like telling them it was the end of the world or something. I mean, you know, and of course, a lot of guys were saying, yeah, all they have to do is throw some pixie dust at you and you're going to be sucking dick for the rest of your life and everything. And oh, Lord, I mean, just the, the sheer terror of it it was really something i mean one guy said he wasn't going to go outside he was so frightened and everything and anyway if i had known then what i know now i would have definitely said this guy was a candidate for it i mean he just you know the way he was acting there he he, he liked drama he definitely would have made a, a drama queen and everything so i just thought you would enjoy that little story <laughs> When I finished um, basic training, I then went to Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi for my electronic training, which lasted about almost 11 months, not quite a year. Nothing sexually really came out about it, but from Keesler Air Force Base, I then went to Clark Air Base in the Philippines. And you have to remember that the Vietnam War was still going on, and Clark Air Base was the main entrance point to what we say Southeast Asia, which meant that was where GIs were going to Vietnam and coming back from Vietnam, including those in boxes or body bags and things like that. You came through Clark Air Base. So there was a lot of excitement, I guess you might say, and it was a big eye-opener for me to be in a foreign country like that. and Well, to make a long story short, okay, just outside of Clark Air Base was an area called Fields Avenue. And Fields Avenue is where most of the uh, bars were. There was about 150 bars, and each bar had anywhere from 5 to 20 girls, depending on how big it was and how well it was doing and everything. And I hate to bring up the image of the ugly American and everything in this case, but, you know, in third world countries such as that, of course, what we call prostitution and everything is sort of a way of life. I mean, to them, it's a way of survival and everything. And with uh, all the 150 bars outside of uh, there on Fields Avenue and everything like this, of course, a lot of the girls are hoping they'll be luck lucky enough to land a, a GI who take them back to the real world, as we call the United States. And, you know, they would have a better life and all that. But in the meantime, of course, the GIs are, you know, do what they're going to do and everything. After all, those bars are just there to cater to the American GIs' um, wants and everything. And uh, for a lot of GIs, this was one gigantic sex fest. I mean, for a lot of guys, it was the first time they got a piece of ass, as we say. And, you know, for two packs of cigarettes, you could have a girl that would get you off in about an hour. And if you wanted an all-nighter, as we say, you'd pay with two cartons of cigarettes. So American cigarettes were a black market item, so they were 
highly prized and everything. And in third world countries, such as the Philippines, okay, they don't have a lot of things that we take for granted. And one of those things is building codes. I mean, here, if we build a building, you expect it to at least stand for at least a year or so. And over there, they, you know, they just built a building and then very, it was not at all unusual when there was an earthquake or typhoon and the building would fall down and it was not unusual to be walking around. You'd see the foundation of a building. But in the case of Fields Avenue, when a building fell down, they were pretty quick about building a new building where the old building had been because, of course, you know, you're losing revenue if GIs aren't going to walk into an older space and everything. But right in the middle of Fields Avenue, I mean, almost dead center, was this one building that had no door. It caught my eye quite quickly. Turns out the entrance was about a block away. You had to go down the street and then around and down this alleyway. And then that's where the entrance was. And it turns out this building was a Pentecostal church. I mean, right slap in the middle of all these other bars. And like I said, uh, on the weekends and holidays, I mean, it was like one gigantic Mardi Gras. You had girls running out, calling to you from the doors and from the windows or flashing colored lights or GIs all over the place, you know, people drinking beer, singing, calling out to each other. Now, streaking had just come into vogue. And so um, it was not unusual uh, for some strange reason, I never saw a GI do it by himself. But you see a group of GIs together, get, wear their combat boots, and they'd be streaking from bar to bar and everything. And everybody would be having a great time. And then, okay, right in front of this Pentecostal church was this giant slab of, you know, cement and everything. So I thought it was where a building had been. It was a little strange to me, but I thought, okay, you know, they used to have a building here, and now they've taken everything away. Well, come to find out, no, it was like a platform. And they would have, usually Americans, strangely enough, they would have people come out and start witnessing to all the GIs and, you know, stop their sinning and all this. Oh, yes, and there was a great big sign over the platform area, and they said the Wages of sin is death, you know, some quote from the Bible or something. And uh, for the most part, everybody just sort of ignored them and everything. It was all part of the excitement. But there was this one time, I'll never forget, where there was this woman who was there, American. And, uh, well, let's just put it this way. To put it politely, she was really big bone. I mean, this gal was big, you know, extra thick neck, the whole bit. And she would have made a fantastic wrestler. That's all I have to say. And next to her was her husband, tall, thin, looked henpecked. And next to them, I assume, was their son. He looked about high school age. And I would say he was roughly about the same age as the rest of the GIs around him and everything. And they were all singing hymns or something you know she played the accordion the husband was playing the guitar and the boy was playing the tamarines you know 
But every so often, he would take, he was supposed to be watching his music book, I guess, but you could see him looking around like, what's going on there? What's, what are they doing? Wow, wow. You know, you could see he was getting all excited, but at the same time, he couldn't show any emotion and everything. And that woman, boy, you talk about determination. Now, to you, I don't know if it's appropriate to say the, use the word hate, but those looks and those eyes and everything, as the GIs got, kept getting louder and louder. She kept hollering louder and louder and louder. And it was just the incredible contrast between all the gaiety or the everybody having such a good time. And these people kind of trying to bring everybody down and everything. And, oh, I wish I had my camera and everything. But unfortunately, for me to have left Fields Avenue, go back to the base, go to the barracks, get my a camera, and then come, come back, chances are it, it would have taken a while. And I didn't think it would be appropriate for me to walk up to them and say, are you guys going to be here two hours from now? <laughs> but I never forget that, the, the incredible contrast that that was there. Now, Every so often, of course, the guys would be talking about the different bars and everything and, you know, what were the latest new girls and, you know, what their specialty was and everything. But every so often, they would talk about this one bar where there was a Filipino uh, bartender who was also the owner, what we call the Papasan. And if he took a shining to you, he would come up to you when you were relatively enumerated and kind of whisper to you, do you like getting fucked in the ass? And I guess if the GI didn't quite react, you know, he would sort of, you know, pick any girl here, you know, it's for free or something like that. Of course, it caught my attention real fast, but unfortunately, I couldn't find out where the bar was. You know, I didn't think it looked too good if I walked up, where is this bar, you know, Wanted to keep a kind of a low profile. I guess I should have just said, well, I want to make sure I never run into that bar. But like I said, every so often they would talk about this certain bar. And I always had fantasies about, you know, walking into that bar and then <laughs> asking the bartender if he liked to get fucked in the ass or something like that. But never did find it. Now, as you got toward the end of your tour there at Clark Air Base, it was highly recommended that you stay on to the base at least two weeks before you were supposed to leave. Because the idea being that, if and I had seen this happen to other GIs and everything, you know, if the girls found out about it, and especially if they were pissed off at you, they would scream rape. And then you would be arrested and all that. And then usually an offer would be made, you know, pay me a so certain amount of money and I'll drop the charges and you can go home. Also, it was highly recommended that you not partake of the women, you know, just before you leave. Uh, so you didn't take anything home to mama, as we said. So we had what was called the pussy cutoff date. Anyway, unlike the others, about a week before I was supposed to leave, I wanted to take one last look at the Philippines. And yes, uh, so I went outside the gate and I went to walking down uh, Fields Avenue. Now, at the time, just as I was walking through the gate, though, another GI came up to me and he asked if he could walk with me. Now, this is not so terribly unusual because one of the things the military did suggest that you don't walk alone. It was best to walk in pairs or as a group. 
you know, safety and numbers and that type of thing. And I had been attacked one time by a group of Filipinos when I was walking alone. So I'd learned my lesson the hard way. So I was very, very happy to have this guy walking with me. And I was taking one last look. And as it turned out, this guy had been to Clark Air Base before, some five years prior. And he was sort of reminiscing about where everything had been and everything. He was pointing out some of the different bars and everything. And he, most of the names had changed. But one of the things that happened as we got toward the end of Fields Avenue is I saw this foundation. And when he saw it, he seemed very, very unhappy. You know, he gave out a sigh and then he said, oh, gave me the name of the bar that used to be there. He said they had a floor show and it was made up of, of um, female impersonators, as we, they were called, you know. And he saw my eyes kind of go up in surprise. He kind of said, hey, you know, if you had been here and you gone in, you would have seen that it was almost wall-to-wall GIs watching the show and everything. So he said it wasn't all that unusual and everything. And all I could think about was, damn, if I had just been here five years prior, you know, I have to check out this gay thing and find out what it's all about and everything. But never happened or anything. But I always thought how neat that must have been, you know, for all the GIs, you know, watching a floor show and they know this Nothing but female impersonators and all that. And they even said some of the GIs would dress up like women themselves. So I don't know how true that was. Be sure not to miss part two, which will be out for September 1st. And here is just a little teaser for what is coming up in part two. My military lover at... Uh, Keesler Air Force Base. A military policeman is uh, quite a treat and everything. I still remember his face and everything going through, you know, the moonlight coming through the windows there and everything. But, but he usually gave guys a break. But occasionally, you know, if the feeling was right, you know, he'd turn around and said, hey, you want to work it off? And uh, he would take them back to the uh, kennel there. And uh, after making sure everything was secured, he would just point toward the bed and said, okay, there it is. You know, drop your drawers and let's get at it. Yeah, boy, let's get at it. I will be back, ladies and gentlemen, in just a few days with the next episode, continuing Sweeps Period 2020. Thank you so much for joining me. Love you all. Talk soon. Bye for now.